environment as a harvestal plant and algae. It can be grown sustainably. It can be new work for our young entrepreneurs, better food for our children, renewed viability for our coastal communities, and a major contributor toward our personal and public health. All demonstration of rescue, R for renewal, E for environment, S for society, U for understanding, and E for engagement. We will discuss these issues and more in future editions of World Ocean Radio. David R. Brower, and I add the R because there are a hundred other David Browers in the United States, and that keeps me separate from most of them. I like the direction you're going in, KBOO, Portland, and I wish you had a lot more company. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Soul Queens and Blues Kings, making a real concert on Sunday, May 7th from 4.30pm to 7.30pm at the Aladdin Theatre in Portland. Norman Boogie Cat Sylvester and band bring together regional rhythm and blues acts for a night of music and dance as a benefit for healthcare for all Oregon. Again, that's Soul Queens and Blues Kings making a real concert on Sunday, May 7th from 4.30pm to 7.30pm at the Aladdin Theatre, 3017 Southeast Milwaukee Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. You can follow KBU on all your social media platforms. Just look for KBU on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Get access to our new content and news, as well as special offers and contests. Like and share your favorite community radio station, KBU. This is Radio Eco Shock with Alex Smith. Endless record heat over Asia. Strange spring heat waves from Spain to Botswana? Is it because the ocean has never been hotter? Then Katrin Ganswich from Urgewald names the trillion-dollar pension funds and investment houses paying for this new surge in fossil fuel production. Psychologist Derek Sabri Jr. on the African-American experience during the climate shift. We cover the world. This is Radio EcoShock. More on the heat waves in India and other parts of Asia. Weather watchers describe it as the worst April heat wave in Asian history. That's right. Weather stations are logging a sea of red as temperatures hit record highs. China, India, Bangladesh, and Southeast Asia all seeing rising temperatures. And scientists say global warming is accelerating the adverse weather. And experts warn that the heat will hit the poor the hardest, especially those without access to cooling or adequate shelter. Over a billion people sweltered through an April heat wave that broke record after record across that region. Extreme heat was cooking in Pakistan and India, where 12 people at an outdoor rally died in the heat. Almost half of India's population works outdoors and must work to eat. It's unusually hot this year. It's hotter than any other year, and it makes my job harder. I feel like I can pass out at any minute. Damage to the crops there is still being assessed. Extreme heat combined with big city air pollution in both India and Thailand made a deadly brew. So far in 2023, over a million Thai people sought medical treatment for breathing problems in the smog and heat. Schools have been closed in several countries. There's just no doubt the climate extremes are, are really in our face. Now there's just so, so many happening that people can't keep up in a sense. And you keep hearing about record-breaking events over and over and over again. All right, for more on the heat wave and its impact, let's speak now with David Caroli. He's a professor emeritus in the School of Geography, Earth, and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Melbourne. 
Well, let's maybe start back a little bit. It is quite normal for extreme temperatures to occur in towards the end of the dry season, heading into the wet season in many parts of South and, and Central Asia. And, and so heat waves at this time of year are unusual, but particularly what's happened this year is the extreme nature of these heat waves, as you've described already in India, in, in Bangladesh, in China. And those extreme temperatures are being exacerbated by climate change. Climate change is increasing the risks of extreme temperatures, making the heat waves more frequent and more intense. The heat block spread across Southeast Asia with more record extremes. According to Rebecca Ratcliffe in The Guardian, April 27, new heat records were set across, quote, Thailand, Myanmar, Laos, and Vietnam, as well as in China and South Asia, end quote. Health authorities in Thailand advise citizens to stay home. Temperatures in Bangkok reach 42 degrees C, about 107 Fahrenheit. But combined with the high humidity there, this felt like 54 degrees C. That is 129 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty hard to take. A deadly heat wave is silently killing lives and livelihoods and impacting more people than we care to acknowledge. The numbers are scary. Almost half of India's workers work outdoors. They are at risk. The loss in GDP is monumental. Even Nepal and China are reporting temperatures above 40 degrees. People are dying. This is not a weather story anymore. It is hurting your health. It is hurting your body and the economy of your country. According to the climatologist and weather historian Maximiliano Herrera, Laos hit the highest reliable temperature in its history last week. Experts are calling this the worst heat wave in Asian history, and it has been cooking the region for weeks. It's just sticking around. The future has arrived. Well, to other news, and a heat wave is moving across Southeast Asia, pushing temperatures to record levels. In India, at least 11 people died of heat stroke this week. Schools and colleges in some provinces have been closed. Well, Bangladesh is seeing its highest temperatures in almost 60 years, and seasonal rains have so far failed to appear. Regions across China are reporting record April highs and many wildfires with the hottest months of the year still to come. In Thailand, the mercury surpassed 45 degrees Celsius for the first time ever on Friday. Climate experts there warn the extreme heat and drought may last for months. We're going to go to Tanvir Chowdhury, who is coming to us from the Bangladesh capital of Dhaka. And is there any respite at all there uh, at this point in time, Tanvir? Other extreme hotspots have popped up all over the planet in recent weeks. You probably heard about Sahara-like heat washing over Spain last week. It was over 16 degrees, about 29 degrees Fahrenheit, hotter than in previous years. It is unprecedented in Spain. In the southern African country of Botswana, they recorded the hottest April day ever seen. It should be the start of the cold season there, not 40 degrees C or 104 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. All of this excess heat is coming during a La Nina year, which is supposed to be cooler. And it comes before an expected change to an El Nino event next winter, which could make it even hotter. We know the ultimate cause of all this. Humans have changed the atmosphere with our fossil fuel emissions, and by damaging the natural carbon cycle with things like deforestation. But are the hotter oceans also driving this recent heat on land? Let's take a look at those ocean heat waves. Alert, alert. Ocean heat wave. The BBC client and science team just published an alarming story about recent rapid ocean warming. I found it upsetting. BBC authors Matt McGrath and Mark Pointing say, quote, Several scientists contacted for this story were reluctant to go on record about the implications. One spoke of being extremely worried and completely stressed, end quote. When your scientists freak out, it is time to pay attention. The article contains a map from the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts. It shows average sea surfer temperatures in 2011 to 2020 compared to 1951 to 1980. The world's oceans appear to have developed a heat rash, a fever. The worst is around the far north, 
but the seas along the coasts of Alaska, New England, Kamchatka, and China are sizzling too, up to 2 degrees C warmer than in the previous decades. That doesn't sound like much, but it indicates vast amounts of energy added to the oceans. But now in the news, even hotter marine heat waves are laid over that map of longer-term averages. The North Pacific and the North Atlantic have a marine fever for sure. According to a new study by Karina von Schuchman and 67 co-authors, and I quote the BBC here, Over the past 15 years, the Earth has accumulated almost as much heat as it did in the previous 45 years, with most of the extra energy going into the oceans, end quote. In decades of measuring temperatures, world oceans have never been hotter than in April 2023. Think about that. A new global record ocean heat. As I mentioned, there are worse spots laid on top of that. The BBC article says, quote, In March, sea surface temperatures off the east coast of North America were as much as 13.8 degrees C higher than the 1981 to 2011 average, end quote. Well, the main lobster fishers know about that, and they're plenty worried. To be clear, the record sea temperatures set in March and April do not come from the von Schuchman paper. A number of media outlets quote figures from the open access and real-time services like climateanalyzer.org and nullschool.net, and those are based on satellite measurements, so they're pretty reliable. For example, Sam Karana at the Arctic News blog uses Null School to find, quote, sea surface temperatures off the east coast of North America as much as 13.8 degrees C or 28.F higher than 1981 to 2011. And that was for the date March 15th. One caution here. While a flare-up has occurred, care is needed when picking a certain place in the world on just one day or during a month. We do not know the total influences beyond global heating that create these anomalies. Von Schuchman's paper also notes these unknowns. It is happening, she says, but the mechanisms and the proof still have uncertainty. Radio Ecoshock. I have been covering the ocean heat story here on Radio Ecoshock for years. In the last three years, top scientist Kevin Trenberth has appeared a half dozen times to explain the extent and risks of making the ocean hotter. The risks are so huge, we can barely comprehend them, including more sea level rise, faster polar ice melt, mass deaths of marine species, including corals, harsher hurricanes and other typhoons in extreme weather, and the approaching state where the sea can take up less of our carbon dioxide pollution. If that carbon capture facility drops from the sea, even a little, all of the carbon we put into the sky will heat us pretty directly. We lose the ocean protective buffer. Not good. VOA, Voice of America, did some good reporting on this ocean warming story. Quoting their April 17th article, Sudden Ocean Warming Spike Stirs Concern. This is an unusual pattern. This is an extreme event at a global scale in areas that don't fit merely in El Nino, said Princeton University climate scientist Gabe Vecchi. This is a huge, huge signal. I think it's going to take some level of effort to understand it. The University of Colorado scientist Karnoskas took global sea surface temperatures anomalies over the past weeks and subtracted the average temperature anomalies from earlier to see where the sudden burst of warming is the highest. He found a long stretch across the equator from South America to Africa, including both the Pacific and Indian Oceans, responsible for much of the global temperature spike. That area warmed four-tenths of a degree Celsius in just 10 to 14 days, which is highly unusual, Karnaskas said. Since that last El Nino, the global heat ocean content has increased 0.04 degrees Celsius, or 0.07 degrees Fahrenheit, which may not sound like a lot, but, quote, it's actually a tremendous amount of energy, Perky said. It's about 30 to 40 zettajoules of heat, which is the energy equivalent of hundreds of millions of atomic bombs the size that leveled Hiroshima, she said. And that ends a quote from Voice of America. This fast-developing situation in sea heat is well known to science, 
Almost every month, another major study comes from institutes all over the world working hard on this threat. Not everyone thinks this time right now is a big strike. For example, Professor Michael Mann from the University of Pennsylvania says, This is expected, as a developing El Nino adds to the steady drumbeat of emissions from our stacks and tailpipes. I'm not sure we should panic about a particular ocean heat wave, but let's panic about the whole trend. On the other hand, there is a growing chorus of scientists who worry Earth's temperature will not ramp up by so many tenths of a degree per decade, but could jump up in steps and stay there. It is too early to say with certainty whether this will be a strong El Nino year. The signs are there, but spring is a notoriously bad time to predict even next winter's weather. After three years of La Nina, some kind of El Nino seems likely. Even if that develops in the fall of 2023, there is a lag time, meaning 2024 could be the hottest year you have ever lived. These La Nina El Nino systems, called ENSO, they come and go. But Dr. Trenberth told us in an interview last September, human-forced warming has overwhelmed that ocean heat cycle. Global warming is now stronger than ENSO, whatever its state might be. You know the rest. Whether we take this planet to the burning level, too hot for mammals and most of our living friends, depends on us. If we go on looking for normal, exploring and pumping more fossil fuels, being happy in the burning party, mass extinction will happen. We could choose survival instead. Our next guest, Katrin Godsvind, will tell you who is paying to pump up the heat. And it could be you. Then Derek Sebri Jr. gives us the African-American experience. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Last week on Radio EcoShock, we revealed terrible news. Big banks are financing a new surge of climate-killing fossil fuels. But the banks are dwarfed by institutional investors, including your pension funds, university endowments, insurance giants, and more. We're talking about trillions of dollars poured into more oil, gas, and coal. It is midnight for climate change. Do you know where your money is? You can find out. Thanks to a new free online database created by a coalition of nonprofit groups, we can find out where financial power really lives. Our guide is Katrin Ganswid, head of finance research for the famous German environment group Ergewald. We're in good hands. From Germany, Katrin Ganswid, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hello. Thank you for having me. You're really welcome. I'm glad to have you. When we talked last November, you warned oil, gas, and coal companies have announced enough expansion to break the future. Is that coming true? Is there really a surge in fossil fuel expansion right now when we need it least? So the surge in fossil fuel expansion didn't stop so far. Even if we announce as NGOs that it really needs to stop, and not only us, yeah, climate science, even the International Energy Agency says so, but uh, we don't see especially oil and gas companies stopping to explore for new oil and gas resources. They're still on it. Okay, and how much fossil fuel investment money are we talking about with your report? So in our report, we identified more than three trillion U.S. dollars held by asset managers, um, banks, also pension funds, insurance companies, retirement schemes from all over the world. And just to understand, are the big oil and gas companies expanding existing sites or are they exploring and developing more production across the world? Unfortunately, they do both. So first of all, there is something which we call short-term expansion. So this is reserves which will come into production pretty soon, depending on the kind of reserves in a year, in three years, maybe in seven years for very complicated forms of production, but before 2030, definitely. That's on the one hand. That's what yeah, more than 90% of the companies uh, in the oil and gas sector are doing. 
And then additionally, most of the companies are still also looking for new oil and gas resources. So for resources which will only come into production in the long term in a time where the reduction of fossil fuel use should have happened already. That's for oil and gas. For coal, it's a bit less, especially if you look for, for new reserves, depending on what kind of expansion you're looking at. Let's say maybe uh, it's less than half of the industry. So there we definitely see a decline in the coal industry, but oil and gas is still going ahead like they used to. And a key question becomes, who is providing countless billions of dollars to expand oil and gas from the Arctic to the Amazon, and who is in control of that money? Why don't we begin with what you call the terrible two? Who are they, and why do their decisions matter to the world? The terrible two are, in fact, two U.S. companies and the biggest two private asset managers on this planet. It's Vanguard and BlackRock. And it is in this order, despite BlackRock being the biggest asset manager and Vanguard, so to say, only number two. So Vanguard is the number one uh, fossil fuel investor. And that fits very well because Vanguard made very clear that they don't think divestment does make any sense for them. And they also walked away from the Net Zero Asset Manager Alliance they've been part of so far. BlackRock, on the other hand, in a way, they are only second, um, but it's not a big difference. It's around five billion U.S. dollars, which is not a lot for them. BlackRock is usually, um, so Larry Fink, as part of the Glasgow Financial Alliance Initiative, they usually talk about being more progressive, more green, being fit in ESG. But in the end, they're still the second biggest investor in fossil fuels. And if you look at uh, coal developers, so companies which are still building new power plants or creating new mines, uh, here BlackRock is actually the number one investor. Yeah, some of those companies play a game where they say, well, we're not investing in coal mining, but, oh, yes, we are lending a lot of money to coal power companies and, and transportation companies and all the other parts of that chain. Yeah, that's true. So um, they say not coal. Um, I mean, BlackRock has a coal policy or um, yeah, implemented a coal policy, but it was only um, directed to revenues from thermal coal mining, so a very particular part of the coal industry and one which, especially at the time where, where this policy was implemented, was not really doing good. Metallurgical coal you could still make money with, but uh, making money with thermal coal was really hard at that time. And... Um, a few U.S. coal mining companies were also on the rim of bankruptcy, Peabody, I think, being the most yeah, well-known. Um, so you felt it was more an argument of BlackRock to get rid of assets which were not doing good anyway and yeah, painting themselves green at the same uh, time. And uh, we had a look back then when, when Larry Fink announced this uh, divestment, we had a look at how big this share from the coal industry was, and we, we reached at about, depending on how you count it, 17, 18%. So less than 20% of the industry was what BlackRock committed to divest from. And anyway, they only divested from their actively uh, managed funds. So everything which was um, passive investment, which is the biggest share of BlackRock's business, was not uh, taken into account anyway. All kinds of climate games being played by these companies while they claim to be green. So, of course, it's a question of good reputation if you're climate-friendly or not. The general understanding, even if there's, of course, counterparts or, or people would say something else, but uh, the general understanding in the sphere of science, in the this, in this sphere of civil society, and also in the sphere of financial industry is clear, okay, there needs to be some climate commitments to still be part of the game. Um, how these climate commitments are and how impactful they are. That's still really the question. And um, we still think the Glasgow Financial Alliance on Zero is a good example because it started off as a yeah, tricky but maybe promising initiative, UN uh, convened but industry-led. And NGOs had different ideas if this initiative would mean anything and would lead to anything, um, but we were hopeful. But so far, we don't see um, a lot of progress. We see, as said, important uh, participants uh, with a lot of, with a big volume, like Vanguard walking away from uh, the initiative. 
last but not least also because of the anti-ESG laws in the United States, that's at least what they say. Um, and we don't see a big impact. We still see uh, the big investors and banks supporting the fossil industry, and um, they usually try to calculate their emissions and then talk about emission reductions, but clear cuts, uh, divestment um, after, let it be some time of engagement, but then a clear time where you say, now in this case we have to divest if the company hasn't a good transition plan. You don't see this for the oil and gas industry especially. So the investigation by your consortium of concerned groups found 23 big institutional investors provided about half of all the investments on fossil fuel companies. We think climate will be decided by politicians. That's the game. But really, the CEOs and stockholders of just 23 companies could be in control of our future. We should know who they are. And and does your new project help us find that out? Yeah, definitely. Also, first of all, as you mentioned, our webpage on investing in climate, chaos.org, you can find a report where you easily find the top investors, um, and they're displayed. Many of them are from the U.S., but you also find um, pension funds like the pension fund from Japan or Norway on the list, and uh, the National Pension Service of Korea, the Life Insurance Corporation of India, and also if you look at the U.S. companies, even though they're private, um, some of them, like, for example, the TIAA is a, a pension scheme in the end. So, yes, these companies don't only hold the money for your retirement, but they also decide to invest it into something uh, which destroys the future of the planet and definitely also an easygoing retirement. So you have this overview on our webpage but you also have a place where you can explore the data and look for the country of your interest, for the kind of company of your interest, for the investor of your interest, and can really check out what the companies in your country or the investor where you might have your retirement money is invested in. Yes, you talk about uh, national pension funds. and uh, You know, in the U.S., investors account for about 64% of investing in fossil fuel companies, according to your great big study. And it appears like America alone could save the world climate from outright disaster if those investment companies would agree and act responsibly. But it seems like the government is split, the population is split. Do you see hope that Americans are going to come around and really act to save the climate through these money flows? Good question. As you said, is it, it is split. And, um, I mean, I mentioned already the, this anti-ESG law in the U.S. where you already see impacts basically on a global level because you had all the discussion of this, yeah, you have the discussion within the networks of the GFINS Alliance of can, yeah, American banks still be committed um, if they have this pressure in, in their home country. And um, let's say, of course, Americans still can. I mean, we'll, we'll see what, what future brings, but we definitely hope also American society, the majority of American society, will in the end support climate law if they see the impacts. And I mean, the U.S. is a country which sees the impacts. Many parts of the U.S. see broad, see flood, they actually see what climate change is doing. And that's why I'm hopeful at some point also... You as Americans, like I hope the same here for everyone in Europe, will understand there need to be there need to be changes in the system, how we work, how we invest, where we put our money, and how we frame our industry if we want to stop runaway climate change. I remember a few years ago, Greenpeace Germany put up billboards with faces of executives they called climate criminals. And maybe it's time for some new billboards and social media campaigns to put faces on the companies that you outline in your report. Does that sound too extreme? No, I don't think that sounds too extreme to me. I mean, the conditions we are at right now are really extreme, and I think that means extreme measures are needed to have a quick change. I mean, the changes we need don't only need to be quick, they also need to be tremendous, and they need to be more tremendous the less time we have so you have to have impactful campaigns and yes I do think that uh, the CEOs had the leadership of all these investors we're talking about have more opportunity than they 
admit in changing the way they invest. And this will, of course, mean, as, as you especially uh, also talk about the American population, not all of the citizens will be happy about it, and maybe not all of the customers will be happy about it, and maybe some will walk to a more criminal, climate criminal investor, but the more investors and the more banks which walk on the climate path and start walking away from fossil fuel companies, the less space there will be for these companies to just go to a different thunder. Um, and I believe that this is possible, otherwise I wouldn't do my job. We talked about pension savings, and that really worries me because people are trying to save for their old age, but their old age may be wrecked by climate disasters one after another, and and it's even worse for their kids if they ever hope to leave some money to their kids. And, you know, your retirement plan in America, the 401k, you're kind of forced through a government action to be investing in stocks, and and this money flows up to BlackRock and up to Vanguard and other investment funds. Is there anything that ordinary workers can do to stop funding destruction of their own future with their saving money? Yeah, I think, therefore, you might need to explain a bit more about the retirement scheme in the U.S., because I would here I would say you, you look for a different provider in Europe. I'm not sure this sounded like you're stuck if you're working for it specific company is stuck with their retirement scheme. But you, you could get together with the other workers and say, look, uh, these are our terms. No money goes to climate wrecking. That's the best I've got. And I'm going to look up some more about pension activism in the U.S. because it gets really complicated because when people die younger, and, and they will die younger with climate change, life insurance companies make less money, but the pension funds, they have to pay out less when clients die younger. So climate deaths actually save them money. So it's a conflict, a real conflict for any pension fund to finance products that is deadly for its clients. And I don't hear people talking about this. Okay. So what we should workers do is first they should make it public. They should talk about it. They should bring it out there so more of their colleagues know about it. And then they can get together and do something against it and say, we don't like these conditions which are killing our future or maybe us or at least our children. We want to have our retirement money invested in something which is keeping our future. And this would be the answer. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. My guest is Katrine Ganswit, head of finance research for the German environment group Ergewald. And we were talking about their new big list of companies investing in climate chaos. What about the big investment hub in London? Are are the European investors part of this climate-killing game that you report on? Yeah, of course they are. You, you saw more and more progressive coal exclusion policies in Europe. You could definitely see there is a movement. Uh, we also see first oil and gas policies slowly emerging. Um, here the insurance industry has really been at the front of everything. But especially when it comes to oil and gas, uh, with a focus on that, there's hardly any good policy out there. And as you said, the big investment hub London is still uh, within Europe uh, number one. So you say, as you rightly said, 64% of all investments coming from U.S. companies, but the second biggest share is actually coming from Europe, and within Europe it's coming from the U.K., so basically from London. And number one here is uh, Legal and General from London, who is the biggest um, investor in the UK. But if you look at whole Europe, the biggest investor is actually, again, a pension fund, uh, the pension fund of uh, Norway. The pension fund of Norway also did a big uh, coal divestment. They didn't capture the full coal industry, but at least it was really impactful also for other investors to, to go ahead after, especially the Nordic investors. But Norway's pension fund so far has no intention to move out of oil and gas, and therefore they're still big in the game. They're the, with uh, almost 60 billion U.S. dollars, they're Europe's biggest fossil fuel investor. Katrin, tell us more about the Investing in Climate Chaos website and how to use it. Yeah, of course. 
So at Investing in Climate Chaos.org, you can obviously first see a bit of an overview. What is the main messages we, we, um, we want to bring across, some nice graphs to make it easier to digest. Um, but then really the centerpiece of our website is our um, data research mask where you can look for any individual company or investor in the scope of our research. You can look only at oil and gas where the information is derived from our own data from the global oil and gas exit list. You can as well just look at coal, where the data is derived from our own global coal exit list. So this is our own databases where this is coming from. But you can also, for example, look up all investors in oil and gas stemming from the U.S. if you want. You can filter by country, by region, yeah, by type of investment. So you can really look up whatever you find interesting. And, of course, you have an extensive um, methodology which explains everything you need to know and our contact details in case you even want to know more. I think this is a big breakthrough because so much of this information was hidden. There are private contracts between businesses and uh, the public doesn't need to know, but the public really does need to know if we're going to be getting a whole lot more gas and oil down the pipeline. What brought this project going and who else is helping you with it? So what, project, what brought this project going was, first of all, that we in the past just looked at the coal industry and now we wanted to have the full picture and really talk about all fossil fuels. Um, we have uh, lots of, well, there's a network of NGOs who's working on finance, not only on banks, uh, with our sister publication, Banking on Climate Chaos, did the job a uh, week earlier. Um, but also on investors, especially on pension funds, but also on specific asset managers. So all these people really liked our call data and wanted to work with it. So we wanted to yeah, bring more information out there on oil and gas investments as well for other parts of the network to just look up whatever they want to know. We are always sending out tables for specific countries, specific campaigns, so whoever, which part ever of the civil society who wants to work on finance, we always provide them with the information we have. But apart from that, we also wanted to have something which everybody can just easily look up without waiting for us. So really, the, we have 24 co-publishers um, for this publication and their wish and need to have this data. But the research we didn't do alone. As a first of all, as said, we have our global oil and gas exit list and our global coal exit list as basic resources for the data and bringing these industry lists into life was just doable because of a network of NGOs which supported us anyway. On the other hand, we're looking at the financing side. So the, the financial data is basically drawn from financial commercial databases, which is usually used by the finance industry. So we make it, we turn around the use of the finance databases and use it for our own purpose. And because accessing these databases is complicated and super expensive, we do that together with Profundo, which is a not-for-profit company um, in the Netherlands. Yeah, last but not least, there's another important uh, NGO partner, which is called Reclaim Finance, and they show the other side of the story. While we show the numbers, they show the policies of the investors we are ranking uh, in our database. And if you look up an investor in our, our database, for example, Vanguard or BlackRock, you can also find a direct link to their oil, gas, and coal uh, policy tools, and you can see how the policies of these investors are ranked, and you also find a direct link to their own publications. I'm sorry, I missed the name of the group that has these policy recommendations. This is Reclaim Finance. Reclaim Finance. So this is basically the, the counterpart to our data is their policy analysis, and that's why we refer to each other. We do the finance data, and they do the policy analysis, and we do a bit both, of course, but we, we try to split up specialties. Katrin, as we wrap up here, what are the next steps for you and for Urgewald? I mean, the next direct uh, step concerning research is going to be we are already researching for the annual updates of our global coal exit list and our global oil and gas exit list so that we have new industry numbers so that we can also do new and fresh finance research. And the next plan's research is a bank's research on coal, on the whole coal industry and on all banks on the planet. 
Yeah, and we will talk and discuss more with um, our colleagues from the Rainforest Action Network on how we can do the next year's banking on climate chaos and investing in climate chaos studies even, even better and even more useful for civil society. From Germany, we've been speaking with financial investigator Katrin Ganswit from the environment group Ergewald. Katrin is part of a whole team of nonprofit groups developing a huge file of over 6,000 companies financing fossil fuel expansion around the world. Get access to all of that at www.investinginclimatechaos.org. Check out my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org for more links to follow up. Katrin, thank you for shining a light on these real-time climate profiteers. Thank you for the invitation and thanks for your interest. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign-up, just the latest info, free for all. Ecoshock.org During extreme heat in New York City, black Americans die at twice the rate of whites. That is just the tip of climate injustice in the United States, and climate is just part of pollution hitting African Americans. As climate change ramps up the heat, storms, and floods, it puts a spotlight on systemic racism in America. Can it change? Psychologist Dr. Derek Sabri Jr. can trace his family roots back to slavery. Now this clinical psychologist is examining the ways abusive nature has become a vehicle for continuing oppression. Derek is a core faculty member at Michigan School of Psychology. He also practices eco-psychology from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Derek Sabri, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex, for having me. Look, as a privileged white guy in Canada, I feel highly unqualified to talk about nature and the black experience, so I'm glad you're here. My guess from history is that that separation during the mass movement from the south on the plantations to the north, indoors to factories, do you think there was a loss of connection to nature for many descendants of slaves in America? Yes, I do. There's definitely a lot of history when we really take a look in which the environment has been a vehicle for racial violence, terror as well. You know, considering advents of things like lynching, you know, and how nature has been a part of that process, thinking of trees, I mean, even thinking of the idea of going into the wilderness, there's a connotation of, well, being in the wilderness means you know, there is essentially no protection from racial attacks that, you know, might have not necessarily more protection in, a, in an area that's populated more heavily, but there's at least the potential social indication of, okay, there's other people around, whereas, yeah, being outdoors, there is that potential threat. So how has the environment and nature become a vehicle for the oppression of black people, in your view? Um, well, thinking of just many structural and systemic racism, just experiences with things like redlining, for instance. So when we, you know, when we talk about redlining, you know, we're looking at the systemic denial of housing, residential placements to black Americans. And how, when we look at redlining, we also see those same areas that have been redlined tend to have less biodiversity, less green space, higher rates of pollution, air pollution, water pollution. And so we really we see the, the policy that was enacted with redlining has also caused, you know, environmental changes in these areas where if you look at more affluent areas, like in Michigan, for instance, like the Metro Detroit area, there tends to be less green space within Detroit proper, whereas if you go just outside of Detroit to the suburbs, it really shifts into like a night and day kind of change there. So that just being one of the examples of how we see that racial um, disparity showing up in these environmental impacts. And your family came north in that great migration by African Americans, and I wonder, 
Does that foreshadow the coming climate migrations as parts of America become unlivable with continuing climate change? Or I guess we've already seen that to a degree with New Orleans after Katrina. Right. Yes. So typically when we see these large disasters, then, so, I mean, taking wildfires out west, for instance, you do start to see people making shifts, moving. The trick with that is who has the resources, the support to actually make those moves. And typically it's, it's not it's not African Americans, black Americans, descendants of slavery there. It's typically folks who have more resources, typically more white Americans, European Americans, that when it comes down to, okay, I need to leave because this area is the unsafe or maybe I just need to exit this area because I, you know, I don't have any way to stay here anymore, maybe I can go stay with a relative or stay with somebody else, whereas typically black Americans don't have that option. And that's something we saw with Katrina a lot, is a lot of folks, the residents who were continuing to live through that were folks who didn't have anywhere else to go. In a presentation for mental health professionals, you explained three stages of domination, slavery, followed by segregation, and then mass incarceration. Derek, did this come into your own life as you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, in ways, so my my father has been in and out of prison. So, I mean, really at an early age, being confronted with, the, I think, the engine of mass incarceration there. And so, you know, really seeing how that impacts families, how that impacts really communities when you have these shifts and these disruptions and home in these ways because of that either it's a school to prison pipeline or some other, you know, some other avenue of structural inequity that when that happens then you're seeing you know, you're seeing that affect multiple generations and it takes takes families and sometimes and you're thinking about the advent of slavery, of Jim Crow, all the way into mass incarceration, you really don't that's not something that people can shift in a lifetime by themselves. Yes, you talk about shadow slavery. What do you mean by that? So there's the element of when we're talking about the shadow side of that is it still continues in different ways. Um, right, we think of wage slavery where, you know, often black American folks work for gig economies, which you typically have to keep working in that frame if you want to survive. It's not about thriving in that space. And then just thinking, really, slavery itself has been has shifted over time. Um, and part of that is the mass incarceration engine. So now, having a captive audience, and that captive audience essentially has to be there. There is no other choice with that. There's a movie that came out a couple of years ago it's called Alice, and it's in reference, you know, that Alice in Wonderland style. But it was talking about a woman who. Uh, black American woman who was living on a plantation. And so for most of the movie, you don't know what's really happening around there. Um, she actually managed to get off the plantation. It turns out she's in the 1960s, 1970s, but there's still these kind of secret shadow plantations that still exist. And so it was really an allegory to say, you know, there's this Alice in Wonderland effect of people don't really notice that this is here, but it was still there. And so we still see those different manifestations of not necessarily slavery in the proper sense, but this sense of oppression, a sense of servitude, and, okay, do I have ownership over this other individual? So in your professional life, you also practice and train people in eco-psychology. What is that, really? So eco-psychology, what we're looking at is the relationship between people and elements of the environment, of nature. So that includes a lot of different aspects. There's the emphasis of animal-assisted psychotherapy, and so that being part of that as well. Um, equine psychotherapy as well, um, but then also getting into interactions with natural landscapes, so green therapy pieces of horticultural therapy, aquatic therapies, that focus on interactions with, you know, bodies of water and so forth. So as time goes on, we see more 
of the impact of the, and the importance of having a relationship with your environment. Um, we know from the other side of it, like when the environment is unhealthy, then you're also going to be unhealthy. You know, more research continues to come out about dementia risk and pollution. The higher amounts of air pollution you have, the higher the rates of dementia tend to go up. And so seeing kind of these these relational aspects of what happens in our environment ultimately affects us on multiple levels. Right? And so that's really eco-psychology is looking at, okay, there's an interdependent relationship between us and the natural world. And we cannot separate ourselves from it because it is a part of us too. And when we tend to, it causes issues for us and it causes issues for the environment. Some misinformed white people think that those with African appearance can withstand the heat better, but we learn from studies that, as I mentioned, African Americans are more likely to die during extreme heat waves. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a, several parts to that. One of them is thinking about the prevalence of things like asthma, high blood pressure, chronic health conditions within black American communities, for instance. And so there's already that pre-existing racial disparity there. We saw that a lot with um, COVID and that we had probably three times, at least three times the national average um, of deaths in like just Detroit alone related to COVID. And that was because of asthma. You know, the high asthma rates was already a pre-existing condition there. And there tends to be a lot of air pollution within Detroit because of environmental racism and so there's already a pre-existing it's something that's right for the taking unfortunately and so when it comes to heat that shows up again so asthma and heat don't mix well folks who tend to have asthma and get into extreme heat usually can't breathe very well same thing with high blood pressure typically blood pressure medication is heat sensitive and sun sensitive so because it tends to make folks have a harder time regulating body temperature and so forth. So if that is a part of the mix too, then it starts to create this, you know, really vulnerability there. And then also just being displaced person, so homeless and so forth, you have less protection from the heat. You don't have, you know, you don't have a house for that. And then folks who might have a house, it might not be, the infrastructure might not be, up to par for them to actually deal with the extreme heat even in their own home. Are there particular steps that could help more African Americans as the climate shifts? Yes. Um, you know, I'm a proponent of you know, social justice and eco-justice, environmental justice being linked together. And so a part of that is really thinking about the push for reparative justice, particularly with like black American, American descendants of slavery community, and how the push for policy change, reparations, for the importance of offsetting those structural and systemic elements that are contributing to these disparities, and that also being a way to address issues of climate, issues of environmental injustice. If communities who typically are faced with these challenges have more resources for themselves to deal with them, that tends to benefit all of us. We know from studies that African Americans are more distrustful of the medical system, at least some people, and maybe secretly testing plutonium on black Americans, which really happened, uh, could be one reason why. Dr. Derek Seabree, do you think that this extends to less trust of climate scientists as well, as part of maybe a white establishment? Yeah, I think part of that leads to that especially. Um, I think there's a general distrust of, I would say, predominantly white institutions. And so, you know, those climate scientists would typically coming from predominantly white institutions. And I think a lot of the time, there's not a focus on, okay, what is the contextual element here of how does this affect your community? How does this affect you? And how can we help you? I think when folks hear a lot of news about this is, what's going to happen with the climate and there's no way to say okay and this is what we can do about it people tend to shut down or if there's not a personal element there of like okay this is how it's going to impact you and 
is maybe what we can do focusing well with the point, right? And so then you get some of that fatalism, that kind of climate doom showing up of like, well, that's just going to happen, so what are we going to do about it? You direct a program to train psychologists in Michigan. Are new psychologists learning about these complicated relations between race history and climate injustice? Are they ready to deal with that in patients? I would say not fully. Um, there's a push, you know, within the American Psychological Association and many like states and territorial associations to promote more of that training. As an educator myself in a graduate program here at the Michigan School of Psychology, I'm one of the few in the country who, I mean, integrates it in the curriculum at this point. Like, there's not even training programs that have really popped up yet. So, yeah, there's definitely still the need for that gap to close that gap. It sounds like there's a lot of work to do. Talk to us about the social justice organizations around Detroit that you worked with. Well, so in the, in the past, working with just various organizations, so there's a called the CARES organization that's centered out of Detroit. I work with some individuals uh, who have represented them while we've gone to Capitol Hill to advocate for policy change, legislature on, hey, how do we promote people having more access to funding for climate change mitigation efforts or, you know, different efforts for training and so forth. And then also working with just different organizations within the state, so the Mission Psychological Association, helping them develop and know who to talk to in terms of, okay, what organizations are out there that we're maybe going to want to partner with as psychologists. And then also working with the American Descendants of Slavery Advocacy Foundation and, and promoting the importance of how do we address climate change specifically for, you know, the American Descendants of Slavery community. Right? Like we have to contextualize these pieces of how is it going to continue to show up because it is going to continue to evolve. Suppose we become more aware of climate injustice and our responsibility for it. Do you have suggestions about how our listeners can learn more about it? Yeah, I would say, you know, one of the interesting parts now is there's definitely getting to be more mainstream coverage of climate change, the impacts of it, and so forth. What I would say is, you know, really just reaching out to your local community, finding groups in the local community that are already engaged in this work. This is definitely a a work where everybody can play a part, um, and everybody really essentially needs to play a part. And so helping people understand that it's not about what's happening across the world, it's about what's happening in your backyard. And really, how is it happening in your backyard? Because it's already showing up. It's just a matter of being able, like you said, being able to notice that. You know, often, so like the White House here in the United States just recently uh, approved for an Office of Environmental Justice, you know, so now federal bodies have to essentially report on, okay, what is their agenda about addressing environmental justice issues, you know, from every every departmental standpoint. That's a huge shift from what it's been in the past. So there's definitely a, a full momentum starting to build up, but it is also about helping people understand not about trying to look at the national level and say, okay, how do I support that? It's just tuning in and how do you support the community around you? Like here in Detroit, we have excessive flooding. You know, we've, the city of Detroit itself has flooded out probably at least two times within the last six years. And so that's something that hasn't really happened in over 100 years. So, you know, this these are things that are showing up specifically for communities. I remember a while back on a website, there's several websites out there that actually will track and calculate what is the impact of climate change like on your house? Like what is it gonna how is it gonna impact your your property values? Things like that. Like I think that's how you start to help people understand is giving them that context of this is going to impact your day to day in these ways. And people need avenues for support. So community organizations that are already engaged in this 
are helpful because it helps people not feel alone as their space is something that seems, you know, just so impassable and daunting. From the Michigan School of Psychology, we've been speaking with Dr. Derek Sabri, Jr. You can find links to learn more in my weekly show blog published at ecoshock.org. Derek, thank you for talking with us. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. That's it for Radio Ecoshock this week. Thank you for listening and for your support to keep on going with hot news in a troubled world. Well, the... the no respite, really. There's no rain. The monsoon season officially started in the middle of this month, April, and there's no sight of rain except a little bit of rain in the northeast of the country. Other than that, it's been dry heat wave all across the country for the last two weeks. The capital city itself experienced 41.1 on last Sunday, uh, which was one of the highest since almost 60 years now. Tracking the Climate Challenge, Radio EcoShock at EcoShock.org. KBOO Portland. Support for Between the Covers comes from KBU members and from Rose City Book Pub, located at 1329 Northeast Fremont in Portland, featuring meals, drinks, books, and more. Information at rosecitybookpub.com. Hi, this is Dwight Yoakam, and you're listening to KBOO. Welcome to Bookwaves. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Gemma Whelan. She has two novels, Painting Through the Dark and Fiona's Stolen Child. She's the founding artistic director of Wild Irish Productions in San Francisco, the artistic director of Corrib Theater in Portland. She has a short film, The Wake, and two screenplays.